Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome to another edition of Fridays with the Scientists. Today, we are very fortunate to have Eric Snodgrass from Nutrient Ag Solutions. Eric, how are you today? No, pretty good. It's uh, we're ahead of this heat still, so I'm I'm all right right now. <laughs> yeah, I would say one more pleasant day. Before- Maybe two more pleasant days before Mother Nature really turns on the furnace. <laughs> and I think there's um, uh, some of us that want that and some of us that don't. <laughs> that's why it's true. I kind of joke of this part of the country that everybody gets something they want. Everybody gets something they don't want. And some people get very little what they want. <laughs> yeah, especially in 2023. That that seems to be the case. Absolutely. So just how long have you been with Nutrien Pack Solutions? Yeah, so uh, what happened was in 2018, Nutrien Ag Solutions bought a company that I had started called Agrable. We built uh, basically a, a platform that was all about, um, you know, basically predictive logistics for, for, for farmers. And uh, they wanted to absorb that work into what they have for their customers. And so in 2018, August 2018, uh, they bought my company. Uh, and uh, in 2019, I decided to join them. So before that, from 06 to 2019, I was teaching at the University of Illinois. I was the director of the undergraduate program in atmospheric sciences. And so basically that meant I taught a whole lot of courses on uh, weather and climate uh, from the 100 level all the way up to the 400 level, supervised some graduate students and uh, had a blast. Love the University of Illinois, had a great time. And we have a great partnership with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln as well. So it's always good to, uh, to know that these Big Ten schools, we work well together. Yeah, I think so. There's probably, well, UNL and Illinois would have a lot in common in terms of their degree programs. Illinois is obviously a much bigger school, uh, probably, I'm guessing, double the enrollment size. Uh, what, what is you know, what is an undergraduate population in Illinois these days? Undergraduate population, I believe we might be knocking on the door of 40,000 students. Uh, okay. Total population, I think, is for undergrad and grad is well over 50,000 students now. Yeah, so that's that's probably about double what we have out here. But Illinois also has ten times as many people as the state of Nebraska, or For it's sure. a lot more than the state of Nebraska. Um, I, I definitely could tell you taught your. I so I'm a pretty avid consumer of your weekly or your morning updates. I must say, I think you're one of the best in the business. I think you do a great job, and I think your listeners really appreciate everything that you do and how well you explain uh, meteorological features. I think you have a very good way of explaining relatively complex information in a very usable, uh, friendly way. So uh, congrats for that. that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's I get a kick out of doing it. You know, I, I I do it every day because I'm anxious to stay ahead of what the weather's doing. And then I still get to do a little bit of teaching and showing stuff like you do. You know, you get, get that opportunity like, hey, this is what my world is like. Let's let's talk through this and see what we know, what we don't know. And so I, I derive a lot of joy from doing it. So I'm thankful that I have a job that lets me <laughs> still kind of do that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's the biggest source of uncertainty for growers, right? I mean, we ask them time and time again, and and they'll tell you every time mm-hmm. it's weather, right? Because yeah, it could be output price. It could be, you know, your your input prices it could be all these things, but some of those you have control over. There's no control in, you know, what's outside that window right there. Well, absolutely. And one or two good rains in the summer can make a difference between a so-so year and a really good year or a so-so year and a really bad year. Yeah. And uh, 2023 is exposing that one rule of thumb in a, in a big way. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is so that kind of leads me to my next question. We've had a very interesting growing season so far in the Corn Belt. I mean, interesting is probably an understatement. In six months, what do you think that we're going to remember the most? And do you think that there is any sort of viable analog for this year? Now, that's a good question. Uh, what will I be thinking about six months from now and what was the viable analog? The viable analog I don't think exists. And I, I could I could maybe make a case for that by saying um, the Tonga eruption from 2022 might have really influenced things more than we thought. I mean, for, for 18 months, I didn't think about it. But now that we're looking at that stratospheric water vapor load being so high and some publications coming out, uh, that that threw a monkey wrench in at the end that I still don't think we know exactly what the relationship is. But if it's pushing global temperatures higher, we need to think about what that does to the jet stream, what it does to, you know, this this hurricane season that we're about to really get into here. I would also tell you this, the biggest lesson that I learned um, <laughs> by far was to to never forget your semi-permanent high pressure systems. Now, here's what I'm talking about. We have the Pacific high, we've got the Bermuda high. For five years, the Bermuda high did its thing. It was there. It, it barely moved between Bermuda and the Azores. Really reliable feature. I just forgot about yeah. it. You know what it was supposed to do. So I'm like, you know what? Right. And then this year it was like your Iceland. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, and I don't think, I, I mean, I remember the day that I woke up and was working on the weather and I go, oh crap, the Bermuda High is, it's in Europe or it's in Iceland. And I wasn't paying attention because you get so used to something behaving and all of a sudden it misbehaves and you, you don't see it right away. And so, you know, and then I went back and looked at every major drought episode in the Midwest. And what you find is the Bermuda High is gone, but we haven't had one like that in a while. The, dress is, the, the worst drought has been in the plains, you know, or, or the, the Western Corn Belt. And so me over here in Illinois, I've been used to having, tremendous amounts of rain like it is pouring outside of over here right now as this frontal boundary slips through us today so so that is going to be the thing that will stick in my brain make sure that the bermuda high because the reason is you know this right that thing is our moisture pump that's the thing that pulls the moisture out of the gulf it sends in that ingredient we've got the storms made on that and it was just gone so we had an easterly wind all uh you know all spring and that that's the wrong direction but you know it's funny eric this is this is important if I think back to May, I had more growers, especially in the central and eastern corn belt, asking me to shut the rain off so they could finish planting. Like, hey, can you just give me two weeks? So then what happened was those two weeks go by. It's now the end of May. And they're like, hey, when's the rain coming back? And I was like, well, maybe June 10th, the ridge breaks down. We get better flow and it's going to storm. And then June 10th gets here. Nada. Then I say, well, maybe June 18th. Nope. June 28th. Yes. And that's when it all broke loose and it just turned super wet. So there was a month of kicking the can down the road because of the Bermuda eye. So that's it. That's my lesson learned. Pay attention to that dumb thing. Cause if you forget to watch it, it'll burn you. Yeah. I mean, earlier in the spring, it was like all the moisture was decently east of us, at least there may be the very Southeastern portion of brass that caught some good rain, but for most of the state, we were pretty dry. And then in early May, sort of seeing this huge ridge develop over Southern Canada and you had, you know, some trophic in the northwest and things were set up for the front range and the high plains all of a sudden started getting all this rain. And then you'd see these storm complexes develop, you know, somewhere in Wyoming, Colorado, they'd move east and they get to about Grand Island. They would just die. And like the eastern side of the state just could not catch any rain. And we actually finally did start getting some thunderstorms like the very end of May and early June. They were moving 
to the west. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's not a good sign when storms are going to the west in early June. <laughs> oh, and, and but I mean that was where the ridge the ridge was over eastern Canada, right? So you're on the southern side, you get flow out of the northeast, had light showers moving in that direction. You wouldn't believe the number of people that called and texted and emailed me saying, Why in the world is our weather coming from this direction? I'm like, well. It's because the Bermuda High is gone and the Canadian Ridge took over. And how long it's going to be around, that is honestly anyone's guess because this setup could spell disaster and then shortly after it did. Right. And then right right in this area, so Lancaster County, Cass County, we caught just enough rain in early June that probably saved a crop. You get our west of here, dryland corn is is probably the worst crop they've had in at least 20 years, probably longer than that. Like there's pictures of stuff that, Right now is not even knee high. It's already brown. There's probably literally zero yield than that this year. So it's a very unfortunate situation. But then things really kind of started changing as we got into the late part of June. And, and you know, for a little while, look, oh, maybe this is a little bit more like, oh, nine, we're going to have this huge ridge over Texas in the West. And it's going to be really cool in the Midwest. And that lasted for a couple of weeks. And then we had a heat wave. So it's just like, it's been kind of all over the place. But we did get good precipitation here for about, about four to six weeks. Russ a lot of the state, but it, the problem is, is when you get into, if you go into the summer with no good deep moisture, it's very difficult to get really good recharge because if you're getting rain, it's getting sucked up so fast by the vegetation. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. And so that, you know, this season was really set up last fall, right? When we just had the massive drought that for many of us, when it got really dry last September and October, we were like, great, fantastic. Let's get a crop out. Let's, let's not pay the fee to dry this down at the elevator. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were all excited. And then all of a sudden, we got about three weeks in, we're like, okay, uh, it's getting really dry. And the big rivers mm -hmm. are dry. And now there's this big problem. And uh, so it went quickly from a great thing to a terrible thing. But, you know, I was going to ask you, Eric, when, when, when the rain did start getting into Nebraska, from my perspective, I saw too many of those storms, especially coming out of Wyoming, South Dakota, they were just loaded up with hail. What's the hail damage? Oh, yeah. Um. It depends where you are. I would say most everybody in the state has had some hail at some point in the last six weeks. Most places, the hail was probably not either large enough or long enough in duration to cause a lot of damage. But there were certain places that had just absolutely tremendous damage. So I don't, I don't know if I showed you the pictures that were from around Waco and Utica. So there was oh, yes. a storm. There were storms back on, I believe it was July 10th, mm -hmm. that moved kind of toward the southeast and... I don't know how big the hail was from those storms, but if you actually visibly take a look at the crops, I mean, it had to have been at least baseball-sized hail. It had to have lasted at least a half hour because it was just complete annihilation. I, I don't know that I've ever seen that widespread of annihilation. This, I mean, we're talking like a five-mile area yeah. along Highway 34 on I-80 that's just – I mean, at first I looked at it, I was like, man, the drought's worse here than I thought. And then I was like, wait a minute, no, that's hail damage. Yeah, and that, It was just gone. Yeah, I saw some of those pictures too. And what was interesting was that even in places, it looked like you went through and cut the corn for silage, but just cut it and left it. Like, you know what I mean? You didn't you didn't harvest it. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. It was like Mother Nature cut silage and didn't clean up after herself. I mean, right. you know, um, not good. Speaking yeah. of not good, so uh, the forecasts in the next week is also not good. I'm looking at... European model output from early next week and at 500 millibars and seeing the heights are going to be up around 6,000 meters. Huh. 
just how unusual is that this time of year and how like not just the actual pure heights of where 500 millibars will be but the relatively large spatial extent of where this bridge is how, how unusual is this I mean, I think it's quite massive. It's not to say we haven't had <clears throat> ridges like this in the past. You and I both know that, but you know, right. a six thousand meter ridge. You know, for anybody listening that doesn't know what that means, you know, this is this would be on a distribution up there around three to four standard deviations above the mean. So this is way outside of normal. And to see a ridge that size in and at this point in August is 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 pretty exceptional. So what ends up happening, what I get worried about is ridges of that size sometimes get stuck longer than the models think they're going to be there because there's nothing to kick them out of the way. They're so dominant. And the reason, by the way, why we call them a ridge, right, for anybody that doesn't know, if you were to see what we're talking about, they look like a hill, like a massive dome in the atmosphere mm -hmm. of these warmer temperatures. And so to get flow to go through them is hard, so it goes around them. So what do we get? We get the tropical system named Hillary that's going to hit California, dump rain all the way up the West Coast. Storms finally get into the Canadian prairie all around the northern edge of this ridge. The tropics in the in the Gulf of Mexico start to heat up and get going. That pushes moisture into Texas. But from Nebraska, so from Lincoln to Champaign, this area where you and I are talking through today, nothing. I mean, it's just we're tucked under the heat and it might last for most of next week and even a little bit beyond that. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to warn people that not only is it going to be hot. Actually, I think I'm in the update I put out earlier in the week. I said meteorology to English translation of that 6,000 meter ridge is uh, it's going to be sunny and very hot. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think the, you know, what's a little uncertain is just how humid it will be. So, I mean, we are definitely probably past peak ET for corn and we're not, a, a, we're not bone, bone dry, but we don't really have really deep moisture to get us through a week. Some of the model output I'm, I'm seeing shows dew points getting in decently in the seventies. And so it could be looking at, do you think we're looking at heat indices potentially getting in the 110, 115 range of parts of Nebraska and Iowa next, in the next two or three days? Yeah, I do. And and so, you know, you're right about where you sit with ET, but, uh, you know, we, corn is still capable right now, especially in Nebraska, of putting like 3,000 gallons of water per acre per day in the lower atmosphere, right? And in Iowa, it's probably closer to 4,000, given where their crop is. So even if you, I mean, we're shutting off the Gulf of Mexico, right? That's not going to get here, but it's just local moisture source. And then I think about over in Illinois, we'll likely see our temperatures getting up into the mid to upper 90s. But this rain that just fell over my shoulder, right? That's moisture that's going to sit there that's going to be available to evaporate as well. So I, I, I imagine that we're going to have heat index values that are, they're going to be downright dangerous at times uh, in, in certain mm -hmm. places. I'm just thankful that uh, two days ago, no, yesterday, uh, I had uh, my air conditioning serviced because it was just time for it. And they cleaned out all the cottonwood that was stuffed in it and everything. So I will I will think I'll be a fortunate one that'll have a functioning air conditioning. But those guys are going to be busy when we start to see some systems fail with this heat that's coming in so late. And to be honest here, this is in Champaign. This is just our second actual bout of heat the whole year. We had a four-day stretch of it back at the end of July, beginning of August, four days. And then now we have another maybe six, seven, eight days of, of the really hot temperatures coming in. Yeah, no, it's the same way here. We had I, we had quite a few days in June that were above 90, but they were all 90 to 92, which considering how dry we were, we're lucky we didn't have something like this set up in June or else we're probably looking at temperatures pushing one, 104, 108, which I actually think is 
possible someplace along the Kansas border where they really are in, in bad drought and you have a lot of just very decimated corn yeah. and, you know, poor soybean crops and bare ground from wheat's been already even harvested. Um, in our area, I think it's been more of, I, I don't think it's a matter if we're going to hit a hundred, it's, it's probably a matter of how many days we hit a hundred in Eastern Nebraska, Western Iowa. I'm hoping it's only one or two, but you know, if we mix all of it in the afternoons, the dew points go down the upper sixties and yeah, 101, 102, 103 seems fairly possible. Um, so, which is, I think the one saving grace is that in later August, our days are getting shorter quickly. The same setup in July looks, we're probably talking even a couple of degrees hotter and even warmer at night. So probably even more likely that we'd see real problems with um, stress to humans and animals. But that being said, like we, you're, you're right. We haven't had a lot of excessive heat in this part of the country this summer. And by some years by now, we're just sort of used to, you know, it being really hot this year we've gotten kind of used to being more in the low to mid 80s and lows getting in the 60s and so this is going to be a bit of a shock to some people's system so I, i'm trying to actually raise more awareness of it just because we haven't had a lot of it yet this year yeah and and, and that's what's interesting about this year is that really dry stretch in may and june we didn't have any heat i mean it just didn't get hot so the crop in addition to humans and animals was like all right well I can hang on because you're not also killing me with super hot overnight lows where the crop can't stop respirating. Mm -hmm. We also weren't pounding on it during the day. So we saw a lot of the crop in the Midwest go into a pretty defensive posture, but a crop that goes into a defensive posture is actually alive and, and, and going. So mm -hmm. it was interesting just to see that. Uh, and so, yeah, this second round of heat for a lot of us is well past for corn where it can do a tremendous amount of damage, but I still think we're going to have some problems and it was interesting. I was in Tennessee yesterday. They are, they want it. So they double crop after wheat, their beans actually need a whole lot more heat and more, you know, longer going a growing season ahead of them so that they can finish. So it's kind of funny how the country's responding to this heat wave that's coming up. But I think the question you and I have is, uh, all right, does the Ridge actually live in the Midwest for 10 days or does it like they normally do retrograde West and go back to Texas or the four corner States and, I think that's still up for debate as we're talking today as to how long it's going to last. Yeah. I mean, we got lucky in late July that it was three or four days of really intense heat and then it backed off. So we went, we had two or three days around here. We had heat indices from 110 to 120. But, you know, after that, it was gone. We had highs back in the mid 80s. And then, like, a week after that, we were mostly low 80s. So we had like a week of just overcast skies, which is very odd for early August. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Where you're talking about in West Tennessee, you're talking about West Tennessee. I'm assuming. Yeah, yep. And parts of Southern Indiana and Kentucky, that whole region, that that mid South to Ohio Valley area. They've also been very, very wet. Like they were kind of on the northeastern periphery of that ridge for a long time. It was like where they had some tremendous precipitation amounts in Missouri and Kentucky and Tennessee there earlier this month in late July. And you know what's interesting about that is even with all of that precipitation, because of the stage that the crop was in, the vegetation took the water first, which means the Mississippi, I've driven over the Mississippi and the Ohio in the last three days. And the Ohio River looks better, but the Mississippi River is still technically low. It's not, it's not recovered, which means we, to be honest, I hate to say it because no farmer wants to hear this, but a wet harvest would be really good for next year <laughs> to keep the river up over the winter and to get our soil moisture back in place. But no one wants to hear wet harvest. That's for sure. Oh no, absolutely. Right. 
so kind of leading into that, so we are absolutely, you know, and it looks like there's a really good chance that we're going to be in El Nino through next spring. And I know I'm seeing, I was on a climate call with some other North Central folks yesterday, and I think now the CPC is showing there's like a greater than 50% chance that's going to be a strong El Nino, which I think would be almost unprecedented after a triple dip La Nina to go to a strong El Nino. Be that as it may, um, do you do you think that we have an increased risk of a wet and cool October or harvest I time? Do. I do, but I'm I'm basing that entirely off of analogs. So I, I just went out and I took every year that has a developing El Nino similar to the, something like we have right now, and you put it all together. And September and October just look like polar opposites of one another. We tend to be a bit warmer in September. There tends to be more stretches of some drier weather. Uh, and then October just makes us, it's like a big flip and all those analog gears. And I, th I think it has a lot to do with the invigoration of the subtropical jet stream. I think it has a lot to do with possibly, you know, uh, just um, heat being taken on by the oceans on the flanks of North America, not necessarily in it. And so what we end up getting here is a split in the jet in the Pacific and it comes back together and digs more troughs into us. So I've heard a lot of people out there saying, oh, there's going to be an early frost. And I'm just like, wait a minute, we can't, we can't predict early frost months in advance, let alone four or five days in advance, right? I mean, what's the, it's funny, frost predictions always crack me up because what if I were to forecast for a grower that's going to get down to 34? Well, you didn't frost. So <laughs> it was cold, but you didn't. But that, as soon as you get past that barrier for a few hours, and it's a big difference. So we could be cold, mm -hmm. but what it might mean for, um, you know, the early frost conditions I don't really know just yet, but I'll tell you this. I'm not really on board with any subseasonal prediction more than, <laughs> I mean, more than, a, I, I don't know, a month out. I, I just look at it and go, I've seen too many, I see too many failure modes in the forecast to suggest that we could be accurate with that uh, colder October, but history would be the lesson here. History would say, Hey, we have a better chance of being cooler. Sure. And that's what I've, I've been sort of warning people that, that, you know, the analogs we already developing El Nino, like you said, would suggest a cooler, wetter October. I've, I've also told people that there is a strong likelihood that we'd be wetter and cooler in the fall that we've been in recent years. So we've also been abnormally warm and abnormally dry here for most of the last couple of falls, yep. especially compared to last year. Especially, so that wouldn't take much. Um, <laughs> we have also a lot of warm Septembers followed by cool Octobers in the last 10 years as well. So that would also be kind of keeping with recent themes if we do manage to have that happen again. Um, yeah, so I, one, area the, one area of the country that I'm pretty concerned about going forward is the Pacific Northwest. They've been very dry for the last four to six months. They had a very early end to their wet season. They've had a warm, relatively warm. They've had a couple of stretches of significant heat. And looking at an El Nino, you know, traditionally El Nino is dry up there. And I'm concerned that, you know, if a typical El Nino, if that forecast verifies, they could be looking at some of the worst drought conditions anywhere in the U.S. by, say, next spring, next summer. Do you share that concern? I do. In fact, it is, uh, you know, I do a lot of work in the Pacific Northwest, and it's been an ongoing theme that I just said, hey, History would tell us that the jet stream split is going to happen just in the Gulf of Alaska, which means the jet's going to come into British Columbia and miss you. So what ends up happening is you don't get the good onshore flow starting in October through next May. That's their wet season, right? 
So what happens is the mountains don't get packed up full of snow. We've already consumed a lot of the water out of our reservoirs. The Columbia River Basin has been, been used for irrigation for a while. We already have wildfires going in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana right now. And so we just worry that a dry fall leading into a dry start to the wet season, uh, that would be the problem. Now, on the flip side of that, I think the opposite is true for California. I think California, which still has full reservoirs, and I did not, I thought we'd be already be seeing the reservoirs depleted. No, uh, full reservoirs, and then you get the subtropical jet feeding moisture into them throughout winter. It could be something that you get north of that border between, you know, Oregon and California, and you have two entirely different precipitation regimes, north, dry, south, wet. So, yes, I very much share that concern. I think our government does too. CPC has been alerting to this. It's certainly the European model. It's in the uh, National Multimodel Ensemble. And we just saw the other day the newest update from the uh, IRI group out of Columbia University. They statistically process that data and they say drier signals in the northwest. So that's not good. I mean, I don't think folks of maybe where we live understand how much agriculture happens in the Pacific Northwest. It's a huge, huge, and, and they do a lot of exports straight to China. They do a lot of exports mm -hmm. to Australia. They do a lot of export, you know, out just right in their ports, but they're critical for so many different parts of ag in the U.S. So if you like cherries, if you like apples, you like pears, you like tree fruits, you like vineyards, you know, winter wheat, all types of different wheats plus all the other row crops that they grow, man, it, it's it's a not good setup for them going forward. Sure. I mean, it looks like some parts of the Pacific Northwest might get some very beneficial moisture from remnants of Hillary, but that, again, that's still it's a few days out, and it's hard to say with what happens with that. I mean, the, the meteorology would suggest that, yeah, they might get some useful moisture in that part of the country, uh, but it would certainly be mostly east of the Cascades. Um, so, I mean, that western coast is probably still going to be dry, and you might know, my, my concern about you know going to, into next year if this verifies is like they would have such you know bad wildfire risk. Yeah, they um, would. And I'm not looking forward to forecasting that. I I hate talking about fires. They're just such a you know such. I mean, they're a scary thing. And on top of that, the, the air quality issues that you have to deal with, and then all of the downstream air quality issues. Like we saw that all summer long, right? From the Canadian wildfires, some of the worst air quality I can ever imagine or remember. Excuse me, in Illinois. So, yep, you're right. I agree. Yep. And, you know, the other area of the country that's really taken it hard here in the last couple of months has been Texas and the Gulf Coast. There are some years I'd be very concerned about that drought in Texas just persisting into next year. But with an El Nino, do you, do you have some confidence that there's a good chance they'll flip at some yeah. time, sometime this fall? I do. I think I think the flip just doesn't start in fall, but I think it goes all the way through the winter. Um, and I think I think, again, it's the subtropical jet coming over California, the Baja of California, clip in Mexico, hit in Texas, drawn in the moisture. And what, you know, we sometimes worry about strong westerly flow because of how far it can make the rain shadow expand off of the Rocky Mountains. But I don't think we're gonna have mm -hmm. trouble drawn in some Gulf moisture. And remember, you know, Texas, given how warm the, 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 the Gulf of Mexico is, they may start to regain some of that moisture sooner than later with tropical systems. But I actually, yep. you know, thinking about Texas through the Mid-South, and I was thinking that it's going to be a pretty active storm track. I think we're going to see a lot of Miller A and Miller B storm tracks this year. So those are the ones that start like Texas, Louisiana, then go over to Florida and race up the East Coast or start kind of around Paducah, get over the Appalachian Mountains and go. I think we're going to see a lot more of that this year because we did not see it for the last two years. So it could be a very active go of it to hit those dry areas. I mean, I was just looking today, by the way, since late June, uh, like in and around New Orleans, 
it's the driest in 131 years. So we need this place needs some moisture in a big in a big yeah. way. Well, I think they they've also had like nine or ten days at 100 or above this month, which I think they had only had like 40 something days over 100 in like uh, 75 years prior to that. So they've really accumulated some significant heat. Um, you know, in that part of the country, I mean, I know that it's tended to be very warm and humid, but you know, I don't really think of that area as being for 100, 104 degree air temperatures. This is usually the humidity so high that mid 90s is about all you really can achieve. This year, they've been managing to manage to keep some humidity, but they've, I mean, I, I feel like I've seen like an excessive heat warning in parts of East Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi for like two straight months. Like, I literally feel like it's been every day for two months they've had that. Yeah, they have. And they they got one break when the front came through earlier this week. And it was so it was amazing to look at the all hazards weather map and not see the excessive heat warnings. But they're back in place now and they're going to be in a place for a while as this big, big ridge we just talked about earlier sits over the mid part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to see a lot of um, orange and pink on the maps <laughs> going forward. So. Anyway, well, Eric, it's been great chatting with you today. Uh, so just uh, before we finish, uh, can you just please tell us where we can find your morning updates or other updates that you guys that you post on YouTube? Yeah, you bet. So uh, if you jump on YouTube and just search Nutrient Ag Solutions Ag Forecast or Nutrient Ag Solutions Weather, you'll land on our channel. Um, it's pretty easy to subscribe to it. And then if I make a video, which I do every single morning, uh, Monday through Friday, you'll just get pinged with it and it's there to consume. I'll be honest with you. My video, I'd spend 15, 20 minutes talking about the weather. So I try to appeal to the nerds and all of us and tell you what I think is going on. Uh, but I also have a website I maintain. It's just agweather.com. That's ag-wx.com. And uh, that's put out there by Nutrient. But it's where I put a lot of my content. And uh I also have a weekly update that I do that uh, just goes out via email, and I'll be sure to link that on agweather.com so people can get signed up for it if they want. Yeah, it's it's like you do, man. Which we just try to keep folks aware of the things that we're studying and seeing, so that if it enhances a decision that people are going to make, we we want to be there for that. And uh, it's a great thing that uh, both of our respective employers allow us to do. Yeah, no, I actually I think it's I think it's really cool that you get to do a lot of extension type of work working in a private company. That's it's really good. Uh, so thank you very much for your time, Eric, and hope you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me.